Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of Darker Things. I'm your host, Scott J. Gow. Today's episode is Mass Murder in the Sky. On March 24, 2015, news of a plane crash in the French Alps spread quickly around the world on social media. How could a modern, sophisticated airliner plummet into the side of a mountain? The world would soon find out it was because of a death wish. One human being who had plunged into darkness took with him 149 other souls and crippled the lives of countless others who knew them. In today's episode, we'll hear the story of German Wings Flight 9525 and talk about the devastating and important impact this crash had on the aviation industry. I'm also pleased to welcome back for this episode American Airlines pilot Jonathan Hobbs. We'll talk with us about the pilot community's response and the issue of mental health and flying the public. Plus, he'll give us an update on what it's like in the cockpit under coronavirus protocols. Confirmed cases where pilots intentionally crash planes are extremely rare. But even in the last couple decades, there have been disasters many believe were caused by suicidal pilots, even if that's not the official finding. Egypt Air Flight 990, which crashed off the coast of New York in 1999, is one of them, The other is the disappearance of Malaysia Flight 370, which ran out of fuel and plunged into the Indian Ocean in March 2014. The airplane has never been found. One year later, a co-pilot named Andreas Lubitz and an obscure European discount airline called German Wings became household names for the worst of reasons. Here's what happened on March 24, 2015. That morning, Flight 9525 started out in Dusseldorf and flew safely to Barcelona. The next leg was the return flight, scheduled for 935 from Barcelona to Dusseldorf. It actually ended up taking off at 10.01. Flying the Airbus 320 is 34-year-old Patrick Sondenheimer, a captain with 10 years flying experience and 6,000 hours. The co-pilot is 27-year-old Andreas Lubitz, who joined German Wings in 2013 and had 630 hours of flying experience. On board, 144 passengers and six crew members. Most of the passengers are from Germany and Spain, drawn to this low-cost airline, which is part of the Lufthansa Group. One group of passengers are German teenagers returning from an exchange program in Spain. Also on board is Maria Radner, well-known opera singer from Germany who's with her husband and young child. After leaving Barcelona at 10.01, the flight to Dusseldorf is expected to take about an hour and a half and land at 11.39. The flight path takes the plane over the Mediterranean Sea into the south of France and then on to Germany. In the first 25 minutes, the plane ascends as normal, and by 1027, it's flying at a cruising altitude of 38,000 feet. A couple minutes later, the plane is cleared by traffic control to a waypoint in southern France, north of the city of Marseille. Now a tower in Marseille is talking to the airplane. At this point, Captain Sondenheimer tells Lubitz, I didn't get a chance to go to the bathroom after the first leg. Lubitz says, go anytime. 
At 10.30, Sondenheimer tells Lubitz, I'm leaving the cockpit, you take over communications with the tower. 45 seconds later, Lubitz changes the selected altitude on the flight control unit from 38,000 feet to 100 feet above the ground. But the tower at Marseille quickly notices this and tries to contact Flight 9525. Hey, why are you descending? There's no response from the cockpit. At 10.33, the tower asks, what cruise level are you cleared for? Because they're seeing the plane continue to drop. There's no answer from Lubitz. German wings, do you read me? There are two more attempts in the next 30 seconds to reach the plane, and they're getting nothing. The tower is now alarmed by the lack of communication. They believe this is an emergency. They contact other planes in the area to see if they can see what's happening, and they contact the French military, who scrambles a jet out of a local Air Force base. Meanwhile, Lubitz increases the plane's speed to 323 knots. And outside the cockpit, Captain Sondenheimer is trying to get back in. He pushes a buzzer to get Lubitz to respond, and hears nothing. Again, the tower at Marseille says, German wings, please come in. Instead of responding, Lubitz then increases the plane's speed to 350 knots. The captain tries to call Lubitz over the plane's interphone. Nothing. Then, according to the transcript of the cockpit voice recorder, Sondenheimer screams, open the door, let me in, open the damn door. The passengers hear this and realize something is terribly wrong. They begin screaming. Then the captain grabs the airplane's axe and starts swinging into the door with it. For God's sakes, open the door, he screams, and there are five loud bangs on the cockpit voice recorder. Inside the cockpit, there's still no response from Lubitz to the other planes in the area, to the fighter jet, to the tower, and the plane is screaming toward the earth at more than 3,000 feet per minute. Warnings are going off that the plane is sinking too fast and getting too close to the ground. The only other sound in the cockpit is that of Andreas Lubitz breathing in and out, apparently doing nothing but staring straight ahead as the plane flies toward a mountain. At 10.40, the voice recorder picks up the sound of one of the wings clipping a peak Less than a minute later, the plane, with 150 people on board, slams into the French Alps. The pilot flying the fighter jet sees the whole thing. This was a crash that occurred well into the era of social media, so the first reports came out on Twitter and spread worldwide. Within minutes, rescuers were taking to the air, looking for the wreckage, and it took them about an hour before they finally found the first pieces. It was clear right away no one could possibly have survived. The plane was obliterated. Lost to the world, those 16 exchange students, their two teachers, opera singer Maria Radner and her family, two Americans who were on board, and 126 other souls their final minutes had to be terrifying. 
French investigators begin looking for answers. They quickly rule out the weather. It was a perfect day for flying. The data suggests there was no bomb on board. There was no mechanical failure that had taken place. They thought possibly it was a hypoxia event. At such a high altitude, if the cabin was depressurized and there was a loss of oxygen, everyone would pass out within seconds. But there was no evidence of that either, which left only one explanation. And within 48 hours of the crash, authorities told the world they were certain 27-year-old Andreas Lubitz was responsible for the deaths of all on board. One of the prosecutors said Lubitz, quote, wanted to destroy the aircraft, and thoughts immediately went to terrorism. Just two months earlier, a series of attacks in Paris had killed 17 people. But investigators could find nothing to link Lubitz to terrorism. He simply flew this plane into a mountain for his own reasons. Es scheint sich zu bewahrheiten, dass der im Cockpit verbliebene Kollege, der Co-Pilot... Karsten Spohr, the CEO of Lufthansa, said in a statement, if a person kills himself and 149 other people, another word should be used, not suicide. But Spohr also said Lubitz had passed all medical tests, all flight exams, and all checks. He was, quote, 100% fit to fly without any restrictions. Unfortunately for Spohr and the airline, this was 100% not true, and in hindsight, a horrific thing to say. More on that in a minute. But a few days after making that statement, Spohr attended a service near the crash site where he apologized for what happened. We're just very, very sorry that such a terrible accident could have happened in Lufthansa, where we put so much focus on safety. We are sorry for the losses that occurred, and there's just no words to express this. Investigators said that when the captain left to use the restroom, Lubitz locked the cockpit door and manually changed the altitude setting. When the captain returns, he thinks he can get into the cockpit by entering a code, but Lubitz had disabled this from the inside. After getting no response from Lubitz, the captain then grabs the axe, but one of the safety improvements after 9-11 was that most cockpit doors were super reinforced. It was a safety measure intended to protect crew members and passengers, but in this case, it prevented the captain from getting back into his own cockpit. He couldn't have gotten in if he was armed with a grenade. After 9-11, there's really no going back on that issue. Investigators also discover that Lubitz may have planned to crash the plane on the first leg. He at least used it as a dry run, because the data shows that he changed the altitude setting briefly from 38,000 feet to 100 feet on the first leg, and then quickly changed it back. He was practicing. The focus of the investigation switches from the crash site to the home of Andreas Lubitz. Who was this guy, and what was going on in his life before he slammed a jetliner into a mountain? Authorities find a couple of important clues. For one thing, they find several doctor's notes indicating Lubitz was unfit for work, contradicting the airline's assessment of him. One of these notes actually excused him from flying on the very day of the crash. Investigators found that note torn into pieces. He had, at that time, been in treatment of a psychotherapist because of what is documented as being suicidal. Up to now, 
right until he took the plane. There have been several visits at medical doctors and we have found evidence that his doctors documented him to be unable to work and to fly. Also seized in the search, Lubitz's tablet computer. On it, they find internet search data. In the days before the crash, he had been searching phrases like medical treatments, suicide methods, and information on cockpit door security. And it turns out that Lubitz had an extensive history of mental illness. Years earlier, he attended a flight training school in Arizona. He stopped his coursework because he was dealing with severe depression. In fact, he was hospitalized for a significant period of time. And in 2009, he was denied medical clearance for flight school due to depression and the medication he was taking for it. But for some reason, months later, he was given the all clear to go back to school, and he did so in 2010. When Lubitz joined Lufthansa, the airline gave him annual medical checks and he passed them. But it's unclear how much the airline knew about this pilot's history with mental illness. They didn't know that he had seen 41 psychiatrists. 41. They didn't know that in the weeks leading up to the crash, Lubitz had seen at least four doctors for treatment of depression and anxiety. And he said he thought he was losing his eyesight. He's a pilot. Every one of these doctors said he shouldn't be flying and gave him sick notes. Lubitz never passed them onto the airline. But none of these doctors told the airline either. The culture of privacy in Germany is deep-seated. Just think about the country's history where you had the Stasi spying on citizens for decades. These doctors felt bound not to disclose Lubitz's mental health issues, and in fact, they all refused to talk to crash investigators afterwards. Several weeks after the demise of German Wings Flight 9525, a memorial was held for the victims. Ein neues Zuhause und pass immer auf sie auf. A lot of things came out of this disaster, including new protocols on mental health and airline pilots, discussions about cameras in the cockpit, and other things. Before we get to those, let's bring in American Airlines pilot Jonathan Hobbs. Jonathan has flown commercial jets for 35 years, and he has extensive experience training pilots. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. As a passenger, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea of a suicidal pilot murdering 149 people. As a pilot, what went through your mind when this story came out? Wow, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting topic. The airlines th mandated through the Federal Aviation Administration are required, well, the FAA actually requires the pilots, the airlines simply make sure it's done, but the pilots are required for a first-class medical every six months to have a, a medical first-class medical, but it's purely focused on the physical side of it. You know what I mean? Blood pressure, heart rate, urine analysis, you know, all that stuff that you'd get in a thorough exam. Your eyesight, for example, depth perception. Are you colorblind? That, the, you, you have to do an EKG for a first-class medical every six months. The FAA has mandated the guidelines of the physical shape you have to be in. That's for a class one uh, part 121 operation, like flying for the airlines. 
from an airline pilot, the physical aspect of it's always been very stringent. Mm-hmm. Having said that, everybody who's ever flown an airplane has seen a pilot go through the terminal that, you know, has had one too many hamburgers and you wonder, okay, you know, how do they make it through? Well, the guidelines are set up and if the blood pressure and all that other stuff and eyesight is good, if he's, you know, eating too many hamburgers, that's not disqualifying. You know, right. it's, it's the issue in this case that we're talking about with German wings, or you can bring in Egypt air where there was an individual that, uh, even though Egypt's been in denial, um, more than likely uh, put an airplane, you know, into the water off of New York. These cases involve someone who is either suicidal, you know, mentally unstable. I don't know if those are all part and parcel. The German wing, wings, there was a history with this individual and how he got through the cracks. I think the system has been modified, but it's really hard to tell because you're finding a needle in a haystack because it, it's this is the only case that I'm aware of. Right. And it seems like the German culture around privacy and protecting privacy had something to do with this because this guy saw 41 uh, mental health professionals and some of them did uh, write notes and but he but they only gave them to the pilot they didn't actually contact the airline and you know it can't kind of came out that this was you know people just didn't do that in in the german culture and this is recent this is recent so more broadly can you you know either from other people sense maybe there's an issue and and do you say something about that because there are a lot of people around this guy that probably should have known that he shouldn't be in an airplane flying it that's a fair question but to evaluate a fellow professional you know on a flight deck in uniform in the in the you know exercise of your job if, unless that individual says something you know right off the wall you can always go to your chief pilot, at least with American carriers. Each domicile, large pilot base, has a chief pilot, maybe one or two assistant chief pilots. You can always go to them and say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm worried about this guy. I won't give the specific names out, but there are programs that the union provides. If you think someone's in distress personally regarding, you know, oh, are they, you know, do you think you're suicidal or something? In other words, they are teaching us to look out. For people that have family problems, you know, my wife just left me. My kids won't talk to me. I, I, you know, I almost thought of sticking out for today, but I'm here anyway. And there's just a standard that, and I've, I've actually asked the question before when someone said, "Oh, you know, I've, I've been feeling sick. Do you really should you be here today? You have an opportunity to get off the airplane right now if you want. Can you perform your job? You've got to be able to perform your job." Oh no, no, I'm fine. Well, I mean, if you hear that. You have no other authority to go, well, you know what? I don't really care if you think you're fine. I'm not going to fly with you. It's really difficult. You know what I mean? Those are muddy waters. Um, This individual, though, had everybody knowing about it. But, heck, Scott, in in the United States, don't we have HIPAA laws, which says nobody can know about your your physical or mental being unless you let them know? It's a real touchy subject. Yeah, it, it definitely is. When it comes to airline pilots and flying the public safely, you would think that there has to be uh, more stringent uh, protocols. Uh, so what has changed, I mean, even since this German Wings flight, 
in terms of protocols? I mean, have you seen any new things that have come out? Well, imagine what happened post 9-11. You have two opposing forces hitting you here. You've got one where you're saying, we don't want anybody to get in the cockpit. And we got the other going, oh, my God, there's a lunatic in the cockpit. Right. This creates this creates a real mess. So if, if uh, in the incidents of the German wings, I think the captain knew there was something wrong when he when he tried to get up there and the door was locked. Um, you know, in the United States, we, we require two crew members, whether it be two pilots, jump seater, uh, another jump seat pilot, a flight attendant. Two people have to be up there at all times. So even if one pilot leaves for whatever reason, use the washroom or whatever, uh, there has to be two crew members up there. German wings didn't have that requirement. Just circumstance ended up with one very unstable person uh, who had a death wish left alone up there and electronically post 9-11 locked that door and there was no way to get in. That's a that's a Kevlar door that can take a, a you know, a bullet. So it was. Uh, if you listen to the the recordings of it, the captain did everything he could to get into that cockpit, uh, trying to you know break the door and everything else. And that was when 9/11 met a lunatic, and that's very, very, very tragic and misfortunate. Yeah, as we've always talked about, the sacrifice of the people that have died in these air accidents uh, should be always noted and respected, and they're not here to see that airline travel always is improving off these incidents. I mean, they're all tragic. Every airline incident that results in death is tragic. But there was so many young people on that airplane. It was uh, it was just very heartbreaking. That whole thing was just terrible. And uh, yeah, it does. It should it should you know motivate people to work harder to find a way to uh, ensure that that is that type of incident never happens again. So on the camera issue, is it true that in the 1970s, American Airlines had uh, an experiment where they had cameras in the cockpit so that the passengers could see from their viewpoint? There was a period of time, Scott, that they uh, they had these big TV monitors right back then. It wasn't like individual seats. They just had like three or four big screens at the front of each section of the you know, the cabin of the airplane. And yes, yeah, somebody came up with the idea that, hey, maybe these folks would like to... Uh, you know, to watch, you know, what goes on in the cockpit. And tragically, uh, American had a, a DC-10 incident in Chicago when it took off. The engine wasn't mounted correctly, um, and the engine actually came off. So the airplane actually was very unstable. It was uh, one wing wanted to go up, but the other one wanted to come down. And, of course, the airplane. So all the people sitting in the back horribly had to watch, you know, this accident unfold in front of them. So I guess, the you know, I'm assuming that's why they took that you know, took that out of airplanes. And of course that was a horrible accident where no one survived. But in the last couple of years, the the safety arm of the United Nations has proposed that starting after, I think, planes built after 2023, and I don't know where this is in the process. I don't know if it's actually going through or not, but they did propose it. The idea is that those planes would be installed with cameras in the cockpit. So I'm curious, from the pilot's perspective, what are your chief concerns about doing that? What is the benefit of doing that? First of all, the reason that pilots don't like that idea is they don't want their non-peers observing a telecast and going, God, why did they do that? Why did they do that? We live in a very sort of esoteric world in that, that flight deck with that door closed. 
It's very precise. We're trained a certain way. They don't want later some jury watching TV going, well, I, you know, why did he do that? They don't know what the circumstances are. And so they've been able to keep that at bay. As for the, you know, future regarding putting cameras in, there's a big difference between having a camera in the cockpit and having it on. And the, and the unions are going to get involved in this. I'm sure the pilots will still push back. There was some talk after the Malaysian disappearance of a triple seven. You know, well, if we had a camera, maybe we'd know what happened. Well, how? They've never found the airplane. Are you going to have somebody at home watching, you know, airplanes all day long, every day until something like that happens? There would have been no benefit if you can't find the film later. Right. Right. You know, well, the proposal that I had mentioned from the UN actually was a compromise between the UN and the pilots where it wouldn't actually show the pilots themselves. It would just show their instrumentation. So I don't okay. know if that's any yeah, well, better. There you go. It's in the, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've heard a little bit about this. It's certainly not come to my attention for a vote, you know, with my union about yeah. whether we'd accept it or not. I can tell you almost uh, without question it was going to face an uphill battle. Yeah. But in general, with this crash, German Wings, what was the response that you can remember among pilots, you know, people you talk well, to? As a professional pilot, you learn pretty early on in your career that you're going to wait until the, an investigation is done. You know, it's so easy to play, you know, Monday morning quarterback, you know, on Sunday afternoon. Um, but what, when all the information came in, within a matter of months, um, the the psychological background of the individual, this first officer, the view amongst my peers was, what in the name of God was this guy doing in an airplane? You know, he had a history, you know, a mile long of, you know, of mental issues. So, you know, but they they signed him off. They said that he met all the, you know, parameters, blah, blah, blah. But I, that was the big, the big thing was pilots, professional pilots were going, how did this guy get into an airplane? Did you, know? you did you start looking at other pilots <laughs> with a side eye? <laughs> Well, no, not really. I, I maybe when they said, "Hey, you know, when they," because this individual, you know, he in the German wings incident, he tried to do it on the on the leaving Germany and then on the way back, but the but the captain wouldn't leave the cockpit. Um, so you know, he, when the captain went to the bathroom on the way back, that's when he was able to lock the door and do it. So, if anybody ever raises an eyebrow, it's it's when someone leaves, you know. But in, as you know, in the United States, we have to have two two crew members up front at all times. So. Right. So moving forward to the current day, uh, has anything changed since we last spoke regarding the coronavirus and flying in this time? The only I would if you want to call it a major a, a shift is this uh, mouth, you know, protection wearing masks. And um, as this thing has progressed, uh, the company, the airline that I work for, finally, you know, set guidelines stating if you cannot remain six feet away from people. You know, they're asking us whether you're walking through the terminal, going to the airplane, boarding the airplane or whatever to wear a mask. That being said, if you can stay six feet away, you don't have to. As for the actual our domain, the flight deck, uh, we've been told to respect each other's choices. I have an issue with it personally. I don't like wearing it because time of useful consciousness with an explosive decompression at thirty five thousand feet is a matter of seconds. Um, it's the reason we're not allowed to have full beards because the seal of the you know emergency oxygen mask wouldn't be sealed with a with a beard. Hmm. I don't want to be fumbling around with three or four seconds of useful consciousness trying to get this toilet paper off my face. <laughs> it's not doing anything anyway. 
not when you're sitting three feet from a guy, right? You know, the, the other pilot. So to me, but if the other pilot chooses to wear it, we are asked to respect it, but they cannot make us wear it. The FAA has stated if the captain doesn't feel that uh, it's enhancing safety or it's in, infringing upon safety, it's up to him whether he wants to wear a mask or not. And I can say, you know, that the vast majority of pilots are not wearing them. Yeah, there's a lot to balance there dealing with a yeah. uh, potential dangerous situation. Thanks again, Jonathan. I, I love having you on the show. I appreciate you uh, doing this and we'll talk to you again soon. I hope so, Scott. I always enjoy being on the show. Best of luck. Now for the aftermath of this disaster. Within hours, airlines around the world instituted the rule of two. U.S. airlines already had this rule in place after 9-11, so Europe was catching up. However, European regulators just a year later relaxed this requirement and left it up to the airlines. And Lufthansa was one that said, we're going back to our old policy. And the reason they gave was having two people in the cockpit isn't necessarily safer. For one thing, the cockpit door is probably opening and closing more often. They also cited stats that said a plane is much more likely to be hijacked than it is to have a suicidal pilot. In 2018, the EU set forth new policies regarding mental health and airline pilots. Starting this year, pilots must undergo a rigorous mental health assessment before they start flying, and they're tested for psychoactive substances. And the EU is also mandating random tests for pilots who come back from an illness. Following the crash in the U.S., the FAA made clear its policies on mental health, saying pilots diagnosed with certain conditions cannot get a license or must be deferred. Those include attention deficit disorder, bipolar, psychosis, substance abuse, suicide attempts. French investigators also called for medical privacy laws to be relaxed for pilots. A German pilots union said that's okay as long as we can agree on the criteria for suspending confidentiality. The German wings crash is still tied up in courts in Germany and in the U.S. There were two Americans on board. The families of passengers have sued the airline and the flight school in Arizona for failing to prevent Lubitz from flying. Each of the victim's families received about $80,000 in compensation from the airline, but many are suing for more, and it's easy to see why when you hear what the airline said at one point about this crash. Lufthansa argued that the passengers didn't unduly suffer because they didn't know the plane was going to crash. That is a ridiculous argument when you know that the pilot of the plane had an axe in his hand and was trying to chop down the cockpit door. People were heard screaming on the cockpit voice recorder, so that's a ridiculous argument. And the airline had an epic fail on social media the day of the crash. Lack of information, hours with no updates. They spent time changing the color of a logo. Very tone deaf. A study later came out that airlines around the world changed their social media strategies because of this crash. And finally, as I mentioned to Jonathan, the United Nations called for all planes built after 2023 to have cameras in the cockpit. It's not clear if that's actually going forward at this point, but it is an interesting question. In fact, I'll put a poll up on social media so you can give your response to the issue of cameras in the cockpit. On Twitter, it's at things darker, and on Instagram and Facebook, it's darker things pod. <laughs> 
My completely random recommendation for this week is inspired by recent news events, specifically the horrifying death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer. When incidents like this happen, and they happen far too often, it's easy to think, oh, all police officers are bad. Well, they're not, and the podcast Small Town Dicks is a perfect example. It's hosted by actress Yardley Smith, who is famous for being the voice of Lisa Simpson, but she also has a passion for true crime. And on this podcast, she talks with two small town detectives about some of their most memorable cases. These people are clearly great human beings and devoted law enforcement officers, and they tell some incredible stories. I think it's worth checking out. Small town dicks. That'll do it for this episode of Darker Things. Thanks so much for listening, and stay safe. Stay safe.